Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Emily Bingham to discuss her book, My Old Kentucky Home, and the strands of institutional mythology that Kentucky has woven around Stephen Foster's song. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Emily Bingham, the author of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. Emily, welcome. Thank you so much. And uh, this is a great book. I really enjoyed it. But I've got to do sort of a trigger warning up front because we're going to be speaking about the ugliest parts of American history. We're going to be talking about racism. We're going to be using a little bit of racist language, the word darky. That's as bad as we're going to get. We'll use the N-word for anything else if, if hopefully, I mean, that might come up because that's the kind of crap we're talking about here. Um, so I want to give a warning about that. And also just that this is a really emotionally wrenching book for any American, especially white American, especially if you love music and history. And, you know, for me, as someone who was brought up to revere history and to revere music and to revere Stephen Foster and to revere the song, it's hard to go back and really kind of face the reality of what this song has been. Um, so with that <laughs> introduction, Emily, <laughs> what was your journey to writing this song? Um, well, it's long, <laughs> but um, but now it's out there. Thank goodness. Um, you know, I grew up in Louisville. I grew up just a few miles from Churchill Downs Racetrack, where it's played every year and 150,000 people, you know, hear and sing and sing along. Um, and you know, so it just was part of the wallpaper, part of the, you know, and part of a very actually super exciting time of year in our town. Um, but I also, you know, just was always a little, it was a very, it was pretty vague what this song was. So um, really, it wasn't until I was an adult that I came back to Kentucky after being away for years and started having guests come visit me, including at the Derby sometimes, and took the trouble just to look it up, um, <laughs> look up what was this tradition that I was introducing all these you know, nice friends to, along with mint juleps and you know, bring your hat box and stuff. <laughs> um, and that's when, as an adult with a PhD, or almost a PhD in history, I, I confronted that this wasn't the song that I just kind of imagined, which is some sort of mild, you know, old song. Um, it really was a song about the slave trade. It was about slavery. It was about a man from Kentucky being sold away uh, and dying in the deep South. 
and that's a, a painful topic. And the traditional defense of Foster, and first off, I want to say, Stephen Foster, great musician. This is a beautiful song. This is a powerful song. It's kind of a masterpiece for what it is. Um, and Stephen Foster's intentions in this song were relatively benign. He was basically doing a riff off of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the book by Harriet Beecher uh, Stowe, who that was one of the key abolitionist texts that tried to make white people in the North feel sentimental and sad and have feelings for the plight of these slaves. Uncle Tom is one of the main characters in that story. As anybody who's heard that phrase knows, that's a very problematic thing because of the way that character was portrayed in the story. It's still a very racist book, even though its intentions were good. And Foster's song doesn't even go as far as the book did and sort of, you know, we'll explain more about where we come to the song. I just want to get that caveat out there for all the old, for people like me 10 years ago who would have just been outraged that we were attacking this song or whatever. And we're not attacking mm. the song. We're trying to deal <laughs> we're with We're just going song. deeper. Yeah, this is our <laughs> song, like for you and me, like for Southerners and Americans. Like it or not, this is our shared song. And we're just trying to deal with what is this song about? So go on. Sorry to interrupt again. Yeah, no. And then, you know, I did have this kind of memory once I started thinking about it more and found myself being kind of uncomfortable singing it to my children. It's also the state song of Kentucky. Right. I was raising kids here. Um, I, you know, I, I, I. And this memory did come back to me, which is just it's in the early part of the book. And it, it really is startling that I remember reading Gone with the Wind as a kid, a young kid. And I remember coming across the passage where everyone who hopefully is somewhat familiar with, you know, Scarlet and Rhett, the main characters. Well, Atlanta is falling and they're in the parlor of the um, townhouse in Atlanta where, um, you know, they've been living or she's been living. They're trying to figure out what to do. Everyone is, you know, tearing their hair out because the Yankees are about to take over. And they have this moment where they sit down at the piano and they sing a duet of my old Kentucky home. And Margaret Mitchell, the author, printed in her novel from 1835, I'm sorry, 1935, the lyrics from the second verse of, or maybe the third verse actually, of my old Kentucky home. And I just had never seen those lyrics. And when I just saw those lyrics as a kid, they're the ones that go, you know, the head must, um, sorry, just a few more days to tote the weary load, no matter, twill never be light. Just a few more days till we totter in the road than my old Kentucky home, good night. And I thought, well, hey, that's about, that's gotta be about those, straggling soldiers coming back from defeat, which is what, you know, the rest of the book, you know, a big part of the rest of the book is kind of about. And uh, so I actually made in my mind very vaguely in this, you know, you went to the recesses of my mind, but very vaguely, it was a song about defeated Confederates, you know, victimized by, you know, this long war, when in fact, it... <laughs> If I had read the whole lyrics at the time, it would have been very clear this is about Black people and their plight. And yeah, you bring up the anti-slavery thing and Uncle Tom's Cabin. And if you just read the lyrics, anyone today would be like, yeah, that's not a sympathetic song about slavery. But the entire book covers the 170 years of the way this song has been used. And it was never an abolitionist song. That is just, it's been used in lots of ways, but that was not one that had any any mark on our culture yeah and it's also not something that stephen foster necessarily intended so we're not trying to condemn stephen foster for the way the song has been used uh after no. his and we'll, we'll talk about the short sad life of stephen foster in in a bit but i want to get a quote from the preface because i thought this was really powerful and it also hits on one of my hobby horses you say that music is among the deepest means of human connection it can also be a form of mind control. Generation upon generation, my old Kentucky home has inhabited hearts and memories. In perpetual reprise, it seems to stand outside time. But this music has a past informed by thousands of performances, enactments, critiques, and defenses that over time encapsulate the United States' contradictory and contorted relation relationship to slavery and white supremacy. 
we do not deny its reality and the terror is plain to see. Um, and so, and then you say, this book is my effort to scrub it of its decades of nostalgia and burnt cork and confront it what is underneath. But let's hear a song first. This is from Nat Shulkrit and the Victor Salon Orchestra from early in the 1900s. This is a straight up old school version of my old Kentucky home. That was Nat Shulkret and the Victor Sloan Orchestra. And I said it was an old school version, but actually that's a revival version. That's from the early 1900s. The song dates to the 1850s. So there were already layers and layers of history by the time Shulkret and the Victor Sloan Orchestra sat down to record that song. And it was already being consciously recreated as a propaganda tool in a very dark era of human of American history. I mean, you know, slavery was bad. Probably the worst, but the re- mm. the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow era was also an era of racist terror. That's straight up what it was. I mean, whether you get your news or history from Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation or whatever, they're pretty straightforward, you know, about the Ku Klux Klan and the role of terror in reimposing white supremacy on the South after the Civil War. So, you know, that's what we're dealing yeah. with. <laughs> but you also tell that's a story. The period. <laughs> yeah. And, and you've got a quote that that um, another quote I want to hit you with from your book, that the song is tapping into a universal emotion of homesickness and layering it on top of a pretty tune. And that made a temporal hit one for the ages. Explain what you meant by that, like the combination of the emotional power of the song and how um how it's been used like just to elaborate on that that sentence yeah um you know i think that i want to acknowledge that for most people and certainly most white americans and and people around the world as well because this was a global phenomenon this song um this it doesn't call up like slavery that is not what most people are thinking about and i want to acknowledge that most of them are feeling homesickness or or something like that, something, you know, about thinking nostalgically about the past or, you know, good times and bad with the people we love. Um, And, you know, again, acknowledging how uh, masterful the tune, the melody is. It's simple. It's memorable. I mean, it's also memorable because we've heard it a lot. (laughs) But but I do think, you know, I want to agree with you about Foster's genius in, in creating, you know, simple and, 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 you know, lovely arrangements. Right. So I, I think it, it, those big things about homesickness and nostalgia are helped carry something that was also though the part that we don't acknowledge it was carried by this long standing weird, you know, really difficult to explain obsession of white America with blackness. And that is sort of under under the belly of the surface of this prettiness and universality. Yeah, and and you know the the second line of the song is you know tis summer the darkies are gay and it, 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 that right off is a clangor you know and in the civil rights era most people objected to the term darkies and finally changed it and we'll talk about that a little later but it's part. I mean, the song, the subtext of the song or the subject of the song is it's about a guy who's a slave in Kentucky. He's relative. It's the only happiness he's ever known. And that's where his family is, et cetera. And he's being sold into worse slavery in New Orleans. And this was a massive phenomenon. I mean, America banned the importation of slavery in the early 1800s and places like Virginia and Kentucky, where the tobacco soil was played out, would breed slaves as an industry, breeding human beings and export them to um, New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta, where they would essentially be worked to death under the most horrific conditions possible. And if you know, read the autobiography of Franklin Douglas, slavery sucked and it was horrible. And being an enslaved person 
was people were not happy, but white people had this just unceasing need to convince themselves that the black people were happy in this condition and that, that there was something natural about this horrific crime. And, and anyway, I'm trying to... Uh, and that happy, that image of happy black people is directly connected to the blackface minstrel tradition, right? And then we'll get into that, I'm sure. But let's go into you, that you've now. You've looked yeah. into that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and so there's two sides to this and, and the way that it's historically been told uh, for music students minstrelsy, which is the practice of white people, mostly white men, putting on blackface, burnt cork on their face, and singing songs purporting to be uh, African or Ethiopian, they would call it, um, songs. And it's the bedrock of American music. This is the first American music that got the attention of Europeans that made it an international splash. This is stuff like Skip to My Blue, um, you know, uh, Flies in the Buttermilk, old Jim Crow, old Zip Coon, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it was explained when I was learning about music history, um, a guy named Henry Pleasance, who was a classical music scholar that ended up turning on classical music and becoming a big advocate of jazz music. He explained minstrelsy as it was white people imitating what they had seen black people doing, imitating white people. Black people would have these cakewalks out in the in the fields away from the masters and imitate the manners of the white people in the big house. And supposedly then people like the Virginia minstrels of New York uh, had seen things like that or had interacted with black folks in the five points of New York and came out with this music that's supposedly heavily influenced by African-American music. It really isn't. It's really more Irish music and jigs and things Thank like you. that. Yes. <laughs> but it's much more lively than American parlor music or European music had been up to that time. And I do think it was somewhat influenced by African-American music, just not to the extent that it's claimed. A, a, African music is just so powerful and had such a big impact on any European who heard it. I don't think it could avoid having some influence, but you know, basically Pleasant's big takeaway when he explained it was, and the thing to remember is that both black and white people wrote and performed these songs. And that's true, but that came along mm -hmm. later after slavery mm -hmm. was over and only because white people had no other options than to perform this stuff and to do this this act, um, uh, playing coon uh, is, is, is the ugly term for what that's called, um, acting as, you know, someone like Stephen Fetchett, um, Uncle Tommy, you know, acting like a buffoon to amuse white people. And I'm not condemning people like Step and Fetch it because they didn't have any other choice. Public Enemy has a great song, Burn Hollywood Burn, that gives a shout out to Step and Fetch it because he was just doing what he could do to make his way in America. But that's an attempt to encapsulate minstrelsy. The other side of minstrelsy, though, it's the beginning of American music in the best sense, in that this is the first time. European and African music are coming together, even if it wasn't actually happening. That was the perception of what was happening. And it lays the groundwork then for ragtime, jazz, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, swing, et cetera, et cetera, hip hop, uh, everything else. So with that in mind. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, the, some of the instruments that were used in the classic minstrel shows, um, banjo and, and, you know, percussion like bones um, and tambourine, I mean, those, those were you know, not your, it, you know, it sort of created like that four or five man band that, that we, you know, think of as such a, um, you know, taproot, right, to some of what came later. But I make a pretty strong, take a pretty strong position that authenticity around, you know, this being authentically black or authentically, you know, African um, is, is really was like a lot of, um, promotional nonsense. I mean, like, just, you know, that was what people wanted to hear, wanted to think they were hearing. And so the bedrock of this is, I think, deeply inauthentic in terms of what it was claimed to be and what people thought they were seeing. And that desire to see happy blackness even uh, I, I love there was a line by Thackeray, the British author was touring and went to a minstrel show um, in New York. And he said, I've never seen anything that that, you know, uh, generated such a sense of happy pity in my life. Ouch. And this combination of, of sort of sentimentality or or patheticness. Right. But also and, and feeling sorry for a little like how how ridiculous these people are, you know, uh, but also how sort of joyful and fun it is at the same time. I mean, that is, I think, gets at something very core at, about 
this very mysterious uh, syncretic, you know, confabulation of uh, of, uh, of cultural appropriation and, you know, saying you're even culturally appropriating when you maybe really weren't even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are layers and layers of duplicity here, lies upon lies, masks upon masks. And that's one of the powers of minstrelsy is that let performers put on a mask and and you know, that changes the way people behave and, and creates this, there's a magical power to masks, essentially. And especially when you're assuming the identity of another person, especially when you're assuming the identity of another person who's being systematically oppressed on an arbitrary basis of race uh, to the benefit of your arbitrarily constructed race. But let's hear our next song. This is the great Paul Robeson. Um, and this is from the late 1920s, singing My Old Kentucky Home. Paul Robeson, the great African-American operatic singer, um, singing My Old Kentucky Home. And he he uses the D word, the darkies are gay at the beginning. And Robeson is, you know, made his mark as an operatic legitimate singer. He was the star of Showboat, one of the first great Broadway musicals that was a true, you know, the beginning of the Broadway musical art form. Old Man River was the big hit about that. That song has the N-word in it uh, that Robeson sang originally, although later he dropped that. Um, and that it just gets into the heart of this. This stuff is tangled and nasty because of the way we have treated each other and our fellow human beings this whole time has been so horrible. It can't help but leave scars and twisted minds in its way. And so somebody like Paul Robeson was just trying to deal with the showbiz environment he existed in. And that was at a point when Al Jolson is the biggest star of his era. I don't want to bag on Al Jolson, you know, hate the game, not the player. He, but he was a blackface performer and was the biggest superstar of the era. And people like Robeson would do sets of old spirituals, new Broadway songs like old man river by Jerome Kern um, and Hammerstein. And he would also do my old Kentucky home and true African-American spirituals like Go Down Moses and also Amazing Grace, which is a white hymn, but adopted by uh, enslaved people in the South. And so there's this total melange and this misapprehension that my old Kentucky home is somehow, I, I was just looking at it on YouTube and somebody was saying, this gets to the roots of the great black spirituals. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, many people may, you know, literally confused the spirituals and Stephen Foster. A lot of people didn't know Stephen Foster as the author of, and I don't know if your listeners, you know, Camp Town Races, Old Folks at Home, the state song of Florida for many, many, many decades. Um, old Susanna. Uh, old Susanna, right? Old Uncle Beautiful Ned. Beautiful Dreamer. Yeah. Beautiful Dreamer. You know, now he's been held up. I mean, we haven't really talked about his biography, but he's become due to, you know, musicology, music history, the father of American music. But even in 1920, that hadn't quite materialized um, in terms of the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the canon, right? And yet he, his music was part of a canon that was because it was come, came out of the blackface minstrel tradition that, you know, was dominant when he was absolutely dominant when he was growing up and, you know, becoming a, a professional listeners confused a lot of that. And, and so it, you know, they <laughs> later WC handy, I think it was, you know, was asked about my old Kentucky home father of the blues. Right. And he said, you know, maybe Foster kind of got something about, you know, us people, <laughs> but, but if people really want to get at what, you know, uh, you know, get a black experience and want to avoid things that offend us, like the D word that you've used and it's in the song, you know, they just can go straight to the spirituals. That's black. Yeah, no doubt. And incredibly powerful and beautiful. And with none of the complicated legacy, it's like you're, you know, you can get into all down music. All, I mean, all, 
Come Down Moses or any of those, and you don't have to feel guilty about it. This is songs of people under the worst possible circumstances whose culture and language and families have been stolen, whose continent has been taken from them. They've been ripped away from their homeland and come through it and create this beautiful music in their oppressor's language, steal their, you know, they appropriate the English language and, and also frequently English hymns and, and turn it into this incredibly powerful music. You know, so it's a triumphant thing. Whereas minstrelsy is never not going to be, there's never not going to be bad feelings associated with minstrelsy because it's the music of slavers, of people who profited off the uh, some human misery and the systematic mass rape, mm-hmm. torture, kidnapping, and murder of human beings for profit. Um, kind of like our modern capitalist system, but <laughs> much worse. Right, right. I, I like to call it old Kentucky home economics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the way the song continued to put money in the pockets of of of. of institutions and individuals and a few black performers who, you know, kind of felt like they had to do it. Um, and that, you know, defenders of Foster go to say, Oh, look at Paul Robeson, look at Marian Anderson, look at, you know, on and on. But, you know, as you've said, it, that was, it was like a command performance for those folks. And most, if not all of them came around to saying, I mean, can you be please like, we really don't want to sing that song and they stopped doing it. But Conveniently, some defenders just leave out that <laughs> that end of the story. So, yeah, and I, I think the thing that I also like to emphasize is that minstrelsy didn't come out of the plantation South. It came out of Northern people's visions and imaginations and wishfulness of that scene. And, and it also included, you know, scenes and, and kind of songs about... Um, you know, skits and plays about about black people who were free and in the, in the north, but I feel like it's so important that this is an American thing, and it's only really and it was our great entertainment export as you mentioned, but it only really logged locked in as a sort of southern nostalgic uh, thing in the turn of the 20th century. So song was already 50, 70 years old, you know. So we're talking the depth of the Jim Crow era when it becomes associated with nostalgia for um, specifically like this old South era, not just nostalgia for sort of old days. Yeah, and it wasn't an accidental thing. There were very intelligent, very energetic, very wealthy people who devoted an enormous amount of energy to making this song part of the Kentucky culture, official parts of the Kentucky culture. I'm talking about young E. Allison, who was a pro-union guy during the Reconstruction era, who got it in his head that we needed to make my old Kentucky home a state park. Well, I want to talk about Foster first. Um, you, you have some great quotes about Foster that... Um, The pioneering composer from Pittsburgh is perhaps rightly seen as America's quintessential troubadour in the sense that he indulged key myths white Americans still tell themselves. And and he's one of the creators of one of America's, quote, deftest and most destructive creations, the singing slave whose song assured hearers the plantation was a happy place where black people belonged. This is quintessential gaslighting and victim blaming on an industrial scale. This is very analogous to you know she wants it type language when you're talking about sexual harassment and and rape etc this is they like it you know and part of this pernicious myth that people were better off living in horrific conditions of imposed poverty you know and this myth that they were worse off in africa which is absolutely not true but let's talk about foster foster a did he ever go to kentucky we don't think so, but we cannot be absolutely certain that he never stepped foot in Kentucky. He did live in Cincinnati. And oh, wait, actually, he did go to Kentucky one time that we know of as a child, like as I think he was about six or seven. And his mom, who um, had cousins in northern Kentucky, took him and a couple sibs on a on a visit. And that was, you know, kind of near Cincinnati, let's say, across the river um, a little bit and a little to the west. But that's the only time he was 
We know that he was in Kentucky. And we also know that he took a big trip down the river all the way to New Orleans from Pittsburgh. And so he saw hundreds of miles of the Kentucky shoreline um, as he made that trip. And he may have stepped off the boat and stretched his legs. But the myth is that he uh, got off and or at some point spent, you know, cons- you know considerable time at, at this plantation house in 40 miles south of Louisville, Kentucky, um, and, you know, was so inspired by the beauties and the wonders of that place that he wrote this beautiful song to memorialize it. That is completely fiction. All right. And let's take a quick break in here from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the myth that they built around Stephen Foster's alleged time in Kentucky. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so there's a place in Kentucky, however, that's associated with Stephen Foster and is, in fact, the old Kentucky home state park today. How did that come to be associated with Foster and how did it become a state park? Right. We aren't sure, but basically come around the turn of the century, there was the, the, the third generation of the owner of this house, um, or she was born into the Rowan family. She had this big house on her hand. She st- you know, there was some story that Foster had been there, maybe. And she started just telling that story. We know now that his sister did visit that house when he was, again, a little tiny kid, like two or three or four years old, um, and made the acquaintance of the people there. Um, So maybe that's what got confused in her mind, or maybe she just conveniently (laughs) expanded that to include the famous brother who, um, you know, who later wrote the song about Kentucky. But in any case, she puts it on the market in the 1920s. And by that time, you mentioned young Allison. He was a a, a journalist and and author, um, and he was really trying to promote tourism and help the economy of Kentucky. And he basically helped start a campaign from sort of the very top of political, you know, and, and business, you know, leaders to, you know, turn this house into a shrine to Stephen Foster. It was called the Let's Buy It campaign. And the state, along with some private money, um, the the private subscription campaign fell far short of expectations and hopes, but the state ended up filling up the gap and they paid $65,000 for something that had just a few years earlier been, um, you know, been, been estimated to be worth 10. So with that, um, (laughs) nice markup for Ms. Rowan. Um, With that, we acquired this big brick house and it became, it's a very iconic image in Kentucky and maybe even beyond, like it just, it's on our quarter, the sort of bicentennial quarter for the, for the state. And we have these stamps with it on it and it it just, it, it takes off, but, um, and millions of people come to see it. But one thing that I like to to note about it 
is the, the, the song, My Old Kentucky Home, even the first verse, which is what most people heard, was, you know, talked about the young folks rolling on the little cabin floor. And that transformation of um, a cabin, which is the only dwelling ever mentioned in the song by Stephen Foster, because he was interested in talking about the people, you know, the black people, because that's what blackface minstrel show people wanted to hear. The cabin morphs into a mansion, into a plantation home. And this house in Bardstown, Kentucky, which is like the hippest center of bourbon tourism in our in our state now this house um actually paves the way for plantation tourism all over the south in the jim crow era and that became a major driver of you know tourist economies and you know again commodification of um mythology about this you know exciting and gracious era, supposedly, um, in, that people could then walk through these homes and think about, you know, what things were like in those days and kind of admire them, right? Have weddings at them and so forth. So I do see this as extremely, even though Kentucky was not a state that had very many plantations, and actually this house really was not a plantation, <laughs> but it looked enough like one and they, you know, added a fake slave uh, cemetery and other uh, cabin sort of ersatz, you know, stuff that would help be convincing. And they even hired a guy, a black man, to go around pretending that he was descended from, um, you know, from people held in bondage there and uh, to sing and, you know, yeah. sort of play the harmonica. And we've also got to mention Kentucky fought for the Union. <laughs> people fought and bled and died to free slaves from Kentucky. Plenty of Kentuckians crossed over and fought for the South as well, but the majority of Kentuckians fought for the Union, and that was a conscious decision on their part. Um, so, yeah, this Reconstruction, not Reconstruction, this Jim Crow era mythology, and, you know, these plantation mansions as tourist traps, it's as if Germany after World War II had big, you know, Auschwitz is rightfully a shrine and a place that tourists visit, but it's not a place where tourists go and lark about and play. And it's as if most of the attention at Auschwitz was on the glamorous home of the commander of the death yes. camp. That's you know, analogy. And look at the beautiful plates his wife enjoyed serving guests on. And here's where they entertained at dances. And all that stuff happened there. You know, and it's this really sick you know, essentially the South lost the Civil War and won Reconstruction in 1877 and then goes on to launch this systematic, endless propaganda campaign for 150 years to make it seem like that was okay. And then this brings us to the Lilly family. And this is the Eli Lilly family, as in pharmaceutical millions. And there's a guy, Josiah Kirby Lilly, who's kind of the John D. Rockefeller of the Lilly family. His father was Eli Lilly, but he's the guy who made it a massive multi uh million dollar corporation. How does Josiah Kirby Lilly come into the story and what was his role here? Well, I love that you played earlier um, the Nathaniel Shilkrit Orchestra because it was that um, band that he, that Josiah Lilly was sitting around in his um, special like Melodian Hall. He built him, he loved music. He built himself a special like house for listening to music and hanging out in the 1920s. And he was listening to this um, recording of Foster's music by Shilkrit and his, his orchestra. When he asked, he was getting ready to retire and he asked his son, he's like, oh God, you know, I need something to do. You know, I'm going to be less busy. I, uh, you know, has any, you know, could you collect Stephen Foster songs? I loved these songs when I was a kid. And his son, one of his sons, who was a, a book collector, actually, was like, yeah, yeah, you could do that. Absolutely. And over the next decade, from about, the, you know, 1930 to 1938 or nine, he spent a mil like millions amassing this collection about Stephen Foster and elevating, uh, paying people. He had a huge staff paying people to archive it and then write biographies about Foster and collect all of his songs into books, which were sent to every public library. And he wrote letters to, you know, radio stations, sending them these books so that they could have their orchestras play Stephen Foster music. And then just to really cap it all off, he had an education campaign where he printed up 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies of a songbook that he created of foster music. And My Old Kentucky Home was the first song in that book. And those were sent to every school classroom in the country that wanted them for free. Um, so children starting in the 30s and going through the 50s um, and sometimes beyond were using these paperback, you know, totally, you know, and it went on for decades, um, songbooks where this was, you know, how you learn music. This was American music. And he really turned Stephen Foster into that. I mean, his work, Lily's work, did, I think, elevate Foster into that pantheon of like, you know, American cultural, you know, icons and heroes. Because people didn't know that much about him. They, they sort of knew about his music, but many didn't know about him. And let's take a quick break and hear Louis Armstrong doing My Old Kentucky Home. This is 1964. Yes, we've no more that was Louis Armstrong doing My Old Kentucky Home in 1964. I probably should have got one of the 1930s takes, but uh, nobody's perfect. But Louis was kind of interpreting that song tongue-in-cheek. And for as much as he was criticized in the 60s and later in his life for being a quote-unquote Uncle Tom, he was not an Uncle Tom. And he... Um, you know, address, address a number of these songs and very much made it clear that these songs were not speaking for him and he's kind of taking the piss out of him. And there's a number of black artists and writers that confronted my old Kentucky home, starting with Frederick Douglass, who had hopes that perhaps the sentiment and the song could reach people and become a useful tool. But you tell a number of great stories. Uh, Joshua McCarter Simpson, who uh, did a play, The Fugitive's Dreams, uh, The Hampton colored students who paired it with Go Down Music, Moses when they performed, uh, the Higher Sisters did a play Out of Bondage, uh, Tony Fletcher's Negro Minstrel, Billy McLean had a big production, The South Before the War, and another one, Black America. These were big touring productions. How did these folks try to co-opt or adapt or change My Old Kentucky Home so that it spoke more truly to their experience and what they wanted to see in the culture? Yeah, I mean, this was a thread that was, you know, one of the most fascinating for me in the research was tracing the way black performers and musicians, you know, used, not used, but managed really, you know, a song that was handed to them and expected. There's one story of a unnamed um, quote unquote Negro combo from turn of the century, New York. And there was a letter written to an editor in a paper saying, there's, you know, I'm never going to hire these folks again because they just totally mangled my old Kentucky home. They didn't, they, they, they seemed not to even really know it. Well, they knew it. They, everyone knew, every musician at that time knew how to play it. They just probably, you know, were resisting. Um, but yes, yeah, most people did sort of feel like they had to. And, and, and look, on the scale of um, songs about blackness, there were many uglier songs, and I think that's good to you know be aware of. This was never, this was not like, you know, the worst of the worst. It didn't use the N word, you know, so it that sort of helped it survive. And I think that was actually very conscious on Foster's part. He wanted to, um, he was he was writing for the largest possible audience. That he didn't want to be anti-slavery, he didn't want to be pro-slavery. He wanted to be as genteel as he could while also appealing to the you know, minstrel show market. Um, and so, yeah, the, these artists, you know, tried to make it part of their respectability um, in many ways. So often the song was was uh, sung in this more operatic way, right? That sort of takes the jolly or, or I don't know, takes the sort of lugubrious, maybe, you know, sad sack, you know, I don't know, guy, strumming you know by the cabin door and and you know it's maybe it is a cry of real pain which i think was what maybe robeson was after um and the higher sisters you know they 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 plug it in with 
classical opera arias um, in the 1870s, um, which was, they were the first touring, all black touring company. Amazing. I, I think it's likely that that was put in to be kind of a, a comforting um, interlude from seeing black people perform classical music. <laughs> Just to like, oh yeah, they also do the stuff they're supposed to do, right? Um, yeah. And and so those are some examples. And I think with Louis Armstrong, yeah, that sort of sped up, like, uh, you know, super lighthearted or something. I don't know what exactly I would call it, but I think it's trying to move the, the move away from nostalgia to something else, at least. Yeah. And there's so many uh, stories that you tell of people who rewrote the story, who wrote plays. Henrietta Vinton Davis' yes. play, My Old Kentucky Home, which tells it from the perspective of enslaved people. Um, and, you know, so many attempts to dislodge the pernicious sentimental myth of the happy slave and, and to use this material to confront it. But ultimately, they're up against a steamroller and and the weight of the culture is so much on the side of imposing this myth of my old Kentucky home and the happy slave and the big, beautiful, glamorous mansion. And the Kentucky Derby is an enormous part of that. And I had, I'm not a big horse racing fan. I'm not from Kentucky. I mean, I vaguely knew that Kentucky, my old Kentucky home was a state song, but somehow, even though my mother loved to watch the Kentucky Derby every year, I never knew that they sang it at the Kentucky Derby every year, (laughs) but they didn't always do that. That started in the modern broadcast era, like in 1921, I guess they spontaneously started singing it in the stands. But by 1927, uh, WGN, this immensely powerful radio station, the same radio station that broadcasts uh, the Grand Ole Opry across the country. And by immensely powerful, I mean the signal reached across the country. Uh, They put the Pullman Porter's Quartet out there singing the song. And in 1930, quote, it assumed its sacred place. Talk about the Kentucky Derby and how, you know, it was married to my old Kentucky home and this nostalgia industry kind of took birth right, and-, right. and very intentionally yeah so so um you know like i said in the 20s you know kentucky does this campaign to you know buy this tourist attraction and open it up and that was the year that year of that campaign was the year of that spontaneous singing and i have to think that there was some connection to that um because everyone in kentucky had been asked to like open their purse for strings just the way the song had, you know, you know, opened their heart strings or something. <laughs> um, so yeah, by the, the Derby was a pretty small horse race for its first, it started in 1875. And, but by the 19 teens and twenties, it was getting traction as a national sporting event. And there was a super, super talented sort of impresario leading the track who, a, um, who assembled a, a number of sort of signs and symbols and traditions that helped make this a special sporting event. So it was in Kentucky, which was kind of exotic compared to Aqueduct, you know, in New York, or I don't know, you know, Pimlico, even in Maryland. So I, they, you know, most racing was in the East. Um, but this was in the South. And he you know, but yet it was not too far into the South. <laughs> anyway, it was it became a national, you know, a national event and better horses started coming. And, and it, it, it is the longest running sporting event in the whole country. So it, it's just steeped in tradition. And those traditions that he adopted, Matt Wynn, were the mint julep, you know, having, you know, black waiters all over the place, serving the guests, um, you know, people dressing up in what they felt were, you know, sort of like, like really going for it and, you know, old fashioned, you know, traditions of wearing hats and things like that. And then, um, and, and then the addition and also in the architecture of the whole place, the addition of the song um, really just was, you know, a no brainer by the time it happened. And it actually replaced the star spangled banner and it comes at the most high point of anticipation we're talking about a two-minute horse race people they're all day they've been drinking they've been you know gambling there's a lot of excitement and when the horses step on the track for that actual race is when beginning in 1930 um the song was was played so it's like everyone watches the horses parade and so that i think you know is a real enshrinement and meanwhile the state of kentucky decided to put um, make it its state song and you know 
it, it, it becomes a sort of moment of, of joy, right? Um, and, you know, just thrill. Um, and then it spreads into, you know, actually it already been in sporting events like, you know, Kentucky basketball and football games that was beginning and that, that cemented as well. So this sort of place of honor in um, mass gatherings um, became just a de rigueur and, and, and associated with that national broadcast. And let's hear our last song. This is Johnny Cash doing Randy Newman's adaptation of my old Kentucky home. Home. It's called My Old Kentucky Home, parentheses, Turpentine and Dandelion Wine. This is Johnny Cash. He don't have much to say. He had a little woman who he whooped each day, but now she's gone away. Got drunk last night, kicked mama down the stairs, but I'm all right, so I don't care. Oh, the sun shines bright. And that was Johnny Cash saying Randy Newman's My Old Kentucky Home, Turpentine and Dandelion Wine, yet another attempt to modify the song and make something else out of it from an album, 12 songs that Randy Newman did. That's pretty merciless black sarcasm and satire, but hard to imagine an album like that coming out today um, because, you know, we're just in a different time and place. And, and, as you point out in the book, during the civil rights era, most of the controversy around the song focused on the D word, darky. And I'm just saying it because if you say D word, people might think of all kinds of other dirty words. That's not with D, but, um, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, but there was pressure from the TV sponsors to take it out of the broadcast. And that was actually controversial. And you have stories of various, you know, Kentucky frat boys in their finery insistently and loudly singing the D word uh, in the stands. But, once that was taken out, that was sort of the compromise for the next 30 or 40 years. And only recently, uh, with so much that's gone on in the past decade with Black Lives Matter and Breonna Taylor and things that happened right there in Louisville, Kentucky, has it kind of been raw and reexamined again. And I think you have some really powerful thinking about it in the coda of the book. And I want to quote um, you here. It says, history is not a safe place, nor should we expect it to be. Um, and that this Foster's gift was to take culturally pervasive, take what was culturally pervasive, i.e. racism and sentiment, and render it entertaining, infectious, memorable, and undeniable undeniably beautiful white ingenuity softened the edges of white's cruelties to black human beings in the pursuit of profit this is the work of a system that at some level knows it is doing wrong and that's the thing about so much white racism and projections is we've done all these horrible things collectively as a group to another group of people and then we project these sins onto that other group of people and it is um twisted and sick and, and just <laughs> yeah where have you come down with this song because you've spent a lot of time on it yeah i mean the you know the the taking out the that word um that was offending so many black people in a way ironically you know it was a, it was a concession to their you know protest and complaints which went on for decades but in a way it also made the song safer Right. It, you know, for for the people who loved it the most <laughs> and continued to profit off it, like, you know, like like tourist attractions and, you know, um, you know, my old and, and the Derby. So I, I think, you know, I was with this song for so long. It started in the 90s for me as, as a young parent. And then, um, you know, just slowly just became something I, I, I felt like I, I had to speak up about. And so I dove into the research and, you know, one of the things that I've come to feel is like, okay, in South Africa, people don't get up and together, chorally, you know, celebratorily sing songs about apartheid, right? And in Germany, obviously, that never happens with, you know, songs that, that, are part of you know that tradition of um, of, of the Holocaust, <laughs> and yeah, they rejected that. Being sung at, at soccer games, right? And, and right, exactly, exactly. Like 
that is not the place um, for that kind of music, right? And and I don't think you can, we'll never, you know, this song is our history as, as America and certainly in Kentucky where we adopted it literally like as our brand in the 1920s. And I, I like to ask my Kentucky friends to consider whether this is the brand that makes sense um, you know, this sort of big house hospitality, you know, referring to the old South, um, that continues to offend many, many that never represented black Kentuckians in any way, tradition that they want to recognize. Right. If that's the right, you know, thing that we want to take forward into another century. Um, I, you know, I love the, I interviewed a, a guy who had played, um, baseball was the captain of the team for University of Kentucky. He's now a poet and teacher, history teacher himself. He said, what if my state song reflected my belonging as a human being and not someone who was, um, who was sold or owned, right? Um, so I think that this is, you know, the song itself and what happens to it is, is, is part of such a much larger, larger, way larger process for me and I hope for um, people who read and, 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 you know, dip into this book because it, it is, um, you know, for me, I just didn't know. And I can tell you most, almost everybody else didn't know about this song. Um, though they may have been sort of aware, they were able to push that awareness, white people push that awareness away, uh, that it was somehow offensive maybe. Um, and I, I think we're in a time where we're hearing what black people have been trying to tell us a little better. We're opening our ears to that. And that's where I hope we can stay. Yes, although the backlash is immense and well-funded and well-organized and going on all around us. And and also these things, I know that I said some things that are going to be cringers, especially, say, in 10 years from now, because something like Old Kentucky Home was a white liberal progressive response to the events of its day. There's so many songs like that, and so many times this is the national sin of America, slavery, uh, the original sin, along with the genocide of, of Native Americans. And, you know, hopefully we can reckon with this. And, um, you know, as somebody who loves music deeply and still feels the power of this song, I mean, as long as it's got that title and that melody, it's going to be very hard or impossible to dislodge from the state of Kentucky. But hopefully your work and, and the conversations we're having and other conversations having can make people more aware of what this represents and maybe, uh, you know, stop, stop the mythologizing and, and the, 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 the candy coating of what was a horrific, horrific, you know, uh, atrocity of the worst sort. So um, my guest has been Emily Bingham. The book is My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of Iconic American Song. And Emily, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for writing the book. It helps everybody deal with this pretty horrific legacy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. On Thursday, Nate welcomes Daniel DeVees, author of King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.